Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Book Network. I'm Ronai Bakan, and today I'm delighted to host Professor Jonathan Worsen to talk about his fascinating book, Word Making in the Long Great War, How Local and Colonial Struggles Shaped the Modern Middle East. Jonathan Worsen is an Associate Professor of Sociology, History, and International Studies at Yale University. His research interests focus on the interactions catalyzed by empire and colonial intervention, primarily in the Middle East and North Africa. His first book, Making Morocco, Colonial Intervention and the Politics of Identity, which came out in 2015, won the Social Science History Association President's Book Award. His second book, Word Making and the Long Great War, How Local and Colonial Struggles Shaped the Modern Middle East, just came out with uh, Columbia University Press. Jonathan, welcome. Um, Thank you for joining us today. And I wonder whether if you'd like to begin the interview by saying uh, a few words about yourself. Sure. Thanks so much, Renai. It's really great to be joining New Books Network um, to talk about this book. Um, About myself, I am originally from Texas. Uh, I grew up uh, south of Dallas and um, I went to school at the University of Texas at Austin for my undergrad. And it was actually there that I started to get interested in uh, a lot of these questions that I've since been uh, working on. Um, I studied abroad uh, as an undergrad in Israel-Palestine at Haifa University. And then after I graduated uh, from my undergrad, I had a fellowship to to spend a year in Jerusalem. And it was really in in those experiences and and first getting acquainted with uh, the history of that part of the world and and the importance of World War One, um, the late Ottoman period, and then this transition into what was you know the, what the fate of Palestine was going to be uh, after World War One uh, and the disputes obviously over that. That I would think you know that's one of the earliest seeds that set up uh, a lot of the questions that ended up coming into this book. A um, little bit just more background. Um, you know, after all of that, my partner and I uh, moved to work in Morocco for a couple of years. It's really kind of redirected my attention to, to North Africa and the uh, questions that, uh, you know, having been in the Eastern Mediterranean, specifically in Israel, Palestine, but kind of traveling in Jordan and Turkey and Egypt and thinking uh, about that frame, uh, moving to North Africa is moving out of the kind of the British zones of control uh, to uh, a lot of the impact of France and kind of living in a country that still has a, a a high uh, number of French speakers and, and it's ubiquitous kind of in, in, in all of, in the mixture of Arabic and Tamazight and Berber. 
there. And um, that also really primed a lot of these questions about the legacies of empire and colonialism. Um, also the complicated ways that the, even after independence, that you have these ongoing connections between the former imperial metropole and uh, places like North Africa, in which you have population that is, is somewhat shared um, uh, across those boundaries. And uh, just living in Morocco really set up a lot of questions for me, which has kind of driven a lot of my research since, since then. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, I think in, in doing that, uh, the other things that I really uh, was shaped by in my graduate training, I went to Georgetown um, University and was trained as a historian. And um, it was really, you know, fascinated by questions that had to do with one of my mentors was uh, John Vol, who looks a lot at how uh, religious movements have operated through uh, through Islamic history um, and mobilizing and networking. And he also kind of introduced me to some sociological literatures uh, related to social movements. Um, contentious politics and and that a lot of that kind of set up some of the questions uh, and, and actually the questions and the means of kind of going about them different communities of scholars that I was interested in reading and in being in interaction with so that's a little bit of background yeah thank you so much um, so if we move to the book I think word making in the long great war Long Great War promises to be a groundbreaking book which challenges the mainstream narrative dominating the formation of modern Middle East by suggesting that the pre- and post-World War I agreements and treaties by colonial powers did not map the Middle East. Instead, the clashes between emerging local and colonial political actors reshaped the modern Middle East in the aftermath of the Long Great War. And I would like to begin with this reconceptualization of World War I as the term that you use as the Long Great War. Um, in your book, you reperiodize the World War I in a way that is not limited to the years between 1914 and 1918. Instead, you suggest the term of the Long Great War to capture political processes that date back to 1911 and continue to evolve up until the 1930s in the Middle East and North Africa. Can you elaborate more on this decision of reperiodization and its implication in understanding both the Great War as well as the formation of modern Middle East? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a really important component of the framework that the book is trying to put up. So it's probably worth talking a little bit about uh, what I refer to as the standard narrative, um, this kind of genesis story that is more or less accepted at the popular level, kind of among most people that would think about the Middle East and also maybe with some more nuance, but um, for, for academics and other experts that would study it. In terms of the periodization, I'll kind of refer to different parts of how I interact with and try to revise that standard narrative. But in terms of periodization, you know, obviously, you know, if you ask someone on the street or, you know, a, a kid taking AP, you know, it's kind of history class in high school, uh, you know, when's World War One? you know, the, the quickly it's one of those uh, quadrennial periods that comes off the tongue, 1914 to 1918. And, you know, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo in the summer, early summer of 1914, being as the marker in this event that sets up the July crisis and brings Europe to war that summer. 
with respect to the goals of the book, one of the things I, I eventually realized that I needed and wanted to do was to thoroughly think of, uh, kind of reconceptualize and in, in thinking of the war from the vantage point of the Middle East. If you, if your locus, your center of gravity, your positionality was in, you know, something broadly construed as the Middle East, and I'll, I can talk about this more, but in, in, in the book, the parameters of the spatial parameters of this are, are pretty much focused on the, a zone from Morocco, from the Atlantic coast, the Straits of Gibraltar, across the region uh, to uh, the Iranian plateau. And from that vantage point, 1914 is not a event that starts something. It's actually a, pro- a part of a progression that started before this. And this kind of goes back to some of that biography. I spent a lot of time thinking about the region from the vantage point of Morocco, uh, the far western edge of, uh, you know, you know, in Arabic, it's actually called the farthest west, right? In terms of this early Islamic geographic imagination, and in Morocco, really, uh, an important date is uh, 1911, 1907, 1908. You have the French starting to come in to the edges of Morocco and the coast in Casablanca and, and from Algeria into eastern Morocco, but in 1911. There's an event that uh, the uh, French get, there's uh, unrest in the interior of the country and the French get called in. It's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing. They're, they're part of the catalyst for why there's unrest. And then they use that as a, as a justification to in, occupy Fez, which is in inland Morocco. And the Spanish actually start to move off of coastal enclaves in the north that they ha- have had for a long time. Um, and also it's like an inland occupation in these two directions, it sets up a crisis between the French and the the Germans. Uh, Germany is late to the colonial scramble for Africa and elsewhere and has had its eyes on Morocco. And then there had been a crisis in 1905, 1906 um, over German Germany's aspirations to uh, for to challenge the French uh, claim as that is a zone of control. And in 1911, actually, almost brings Germany and France to war. There's mobilization that summer. And so that gets averted by uh, a British mediation. And and Europe doesn't go to war in 1911 over Morocco. But in September, Italy uh, invades uh, Ottoman Tripolitania and and then in uh, Cyrenaica. So uh, around Tripoli and around Benghazi, the Italians in late September uh, issue an ultimatum to the Ottoman Empire uh, the Ottoman Empire tries to assuage this this claim, and but the Italians just start to bombard and then uh, initiate the Italo-Ottoman War. So in 1911, from the vantage point of the Middle East, the war starts then. And what I'm what I think is really important is uh, that the World War One. There, there's two sort of important moves that are happening. Is that if we think about the World War One from the vantage point of the Middle East, it's going to change how you think about World War One in Europe, it, and I think it is really relevant. I think the book speaks uh, to the broader literature on World War One and how important the Middle East theater is, not as a sideshow, but it's it's a central theater of the entire war. It's really important in the onset of the war, and in this, so to con- kind of continue that set of the onset, um, the Italo-Ottoman War uh, from the fall of 1911. In the spring of 1912, it starts to move. The Italian Navy attacks Ottoman Navy in the Red Sea off the coast of Arabia. It also bombards uh, Beirut. 
you know, in the Eastern Mediterranean. And then they move, uh, the Italians occupy the Dodecanese Islands and then start to move through the Dardanelles Straits to try to uh, attack Istanbul. And the Ottomans, uh, at, at, at kind of simultaneously, the Ottomans, uh, sorry, the Italians uh, convinced Montenegro to attack the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans sue for peace with Italy, kind of sign an armistice, but the Balkan Wars flow right out of that, 1912, 1913. And the Balkan Wars themselves set up why there's tensions in Sarajevo uh, in a Serbian. Uh, Austria had, had occupied Bosnia Herzegovina, 1908. So the whole context of this is a Mediterranean crisis that's triggering the tensions and that the Middle East and North Africa is the zone of overlapping strategic interest and competition between the Germans and the French, for instance, between the Russians uh, and the Germans uh, and their various kind of client states in the Balkans. So really all of the tensions that eventually will uh, extend and expand rather into the rest of Europe are already happening. The Ottoman Empire and Morocco in this in, in, uh, in the Ottoman Empire, both in North Africa and uh, in, in the rest of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Balkan Peninsula are all the pivot point of these tensions that actually activate the war. So given that starting point in 1911 from the vantage point of the Middle East, it's really important for how you understand World War One, but it's also very important for understanding the impact of the war on the region. So that's kind of a start to, um, you know, answering this question about the significance of the periodization. And I don't know, I mean, Ron, I do, should I talk about the kind of the end of it? The, that, that was the front side of the, the, temp- the periodization side. Should I talk about like 1918 also not being a great day? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, go ahead for that. okay, I'll try to be brief, um, but perhaps even less so than the beginning of the war, 1918 um, really doesn't make sense as, as a clean break and a clean end to the war. Um, and part of my argument is I'm saying that the war starts and I, this is, you know, the title of the book includes this phrase, the long, great war. Um, so if it starts in 1911, it doesn't really end it, it, it barely, you know, it's, it's really, uh, a misnomer to say that the, the war ends in 1918. There is an armistice between the Ottoman empire and the British empire and the other allied powers in October of 1918, which ends, and this is the move that I'm, I'm trying to clarify in the book that there's a period of inter-empire war that then that would end in 1918. That the shifts, that the war's not over. It does shift its mode, though. After 1918, it's no longer, you know, the Ottomans are no longer actively fighting as the Ottoman Empire. But within this space between Morocco and Iran, warfare does not cease in 1918. Um, and I kind of start the book off uh, with just doing a survey uh, a couple years later, 1922 or so, where if you actually look at the map in Morocco, in Libya, in Syria, in Eastern Anatolia, in the Arabian Peninsula, through the Zagros Mountains, uh, you have ongoing warfare um, in through the mid-1920s. Synchronically across the board, there's ongoing conventional warfare uh, between, <coughs> often between, mainly between the colonial powers that are kind of have aspirations to exert control in the region, the British and the French primarily, and the Italians, and uh, a whole range of Middle East and North African political entrepreneurs or, or groups that have their own aspirations 
for the polities that they want to create. And so there's no way to really say that 1918 is a hard stop to a period of wartime, because empirically, it's undeniable that there's wartime. Uh, it's shifted into different modalities of that, but it's it's ongoing. And, and the end date that I uh, settle on in the book is, is 1934, because by that point, the major uh, friction points on the map, the, the points at which you've had ongoing warfare about the shape of the post-Ottoman Middle East have settled down. In 1934, if I start in the West, in Morocco, the French kind of finished their military conquest of the High Atlas Mountains in the Sahara. Uh, the, I know earlier, the Italians, uh, the, the Italians in 1934-ish are, are going to unify the provinces in former Ottoman North Africa as, as Libya. Um, the, also in the Arabian Peninsula, Saud, Ibn Saud and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia that's been consolidated in the aftermath of 1918 uh, signs a peace treaty with the Kingdom of with Yemen, the imamate uh, in Yemen. So by that point, I'm basically saying by 1934, and I'm not going to, you know, go to the stake on, on the state. I think it's definitely arguable how you might call it. But at some point in the early 1930s, the map that had been by war had become extremely dynamic and fluid has settled down into something that's more stable. Uh, there's continuing conflict, but most of the conflict is within containers rather than over the shape of, of new containers that are emerging. So obviously the Palestinian great revolt, the, the Arab revolt in Palestine is from in 1936 is me. Two, two and a half years of uh, extreme violence inside of the Republic of Turkey. There's going to be, uh, the Dersen um, revolt is going to be extreme violence um, and there's and, and warfare. But I'm, I'm just categorizing that as, um, as a different, it's a different moment. We kind of moved out of this formative period into conflicts that are happening inside of, of more settled polities than, than not. So yeah. that's, oh, that's an answer to that question. <laughs> that, that was Great. I mean, you are actually proposing a global history of long Great War, uh, which is not limited to European history, which is, I think, fascinating. Um, and in your book, you also like do not only invite us to rethink about the temporality of the long Great War and its geographical scope, which goes beyond Europe, but it also um, the book also actively challenges the Sykes-Picot narrative that dominate the historical accounts concerning how modern Middle East has come to come into existence, right? And I was wondering whether you can explain what do you mean by the Sykes-Picot narrative in understanding post-Ottoman Middle East, and why do you think this narrative is limiting in explaining uh, the formation of modern Middle East? Right. Yeah. So that's a really important kind of driving uh, argument in the book um, to kind of explain this for listeners that may have different levels of familiarity, maybe have never heard of Sykes-Picot. I might wonder what that is. So first, the literal reference here is uh, the Sykes is a guy named Mark Sykes, who's a uh, British diplomat. gentlemen that's that's uh, involved in, in different kind of British uh, before the war and during the war um, involvement in the Middle East. And then Georges Picot, who's the French uh, consul in Beirut, uh, and then it gets evacuated uh, 
uh, with the onset of the war. So these two men, Amit, and they, they conduct negotiations to basically, they start talking um, as after the war's onset, uh, the inter-empire war in 1914, um, to talk about what the French and the British are thinking about in terms of the their aspirations in the event of an Ottoman defeat, uh, what the British and the French might get. And they also include... The Russians in this, obviously in the war, the British and the French and the Russians constitute the allied powers. Um, Italy is a, a party that they're interested, Italy is neutral and they're trying to get Italy in on the on the side of the allies in the war. Um, and so those four parties actually start to negotiate what spoils, you know, what they might get uh, in terms of their own imper- imperial aspirations. So Mark Sykes and George Picot come up with uh, a division that apportions different parts of the Ottoman Empire to among those three. The Russians are uh, guaranteed in, the, in, in what becomes known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which is signed in 1916. So kind of right in the middle of the war, uh, the Russians are promised a zone of control over the Straits and a, they get control of Constantinople or Istanbul. The Italians have their interest in, in Consolidate, you know, holding on to the Dodecanese Islands and having interest uh, a zone of control in southern Anatolia, and then the French and the British kind of famously divide two zones: a kind of northern zone of control and a southern zone of control. Uh, northern zone of modern day Lebanon and Syria and, and Mosul province, uh, northern Iraq, going to France, and this zone also would go well up into most of eastern modern-day Turkey, and then the British having everything south of that line, so Iraq, uh, Israel-Palestine, Jordan, everything that emerges down to the Arabian Peninsula. Um, That's a literal reference, 1916, Sykes-Picot, a colonial backroom agreement to divide up the Middle East after the war. Um, The broader meaning that I'm referencing in the book with this idea of a Sykes-Picot narrative is I'm using that agreement as a shorthand. And this is, um, Sykes-Picot gets referenced. If you do hashtag Sykes-Picot and just kind of put it out there and see what pops up, you'll see a lot that emerges. And this is everything from uh, the Islamic State or Daesh referencing Sykes-Picot uh, as, a, as a kind of symbolic, uh, you know, evil uh, bogeyman that that exists uh, that has ruined the modern Middle East by dividing up what should be unified uh, a unified polity uh, Arab Muslim polity basically um, maybe beyond that but in nineteen in two thousand fourteen they put a video up where they're blowing up or blasting through a berm between Iraq and Syria and the border and saying the end of Sykes Picot so it's you know the, the pal- it's a palpable kind of a a shorthand for a narrative of colonial divide and rule, uh, artificial boundaries, uh, et cetera, and British and French perfidy in, in, in the war uh, to, you know, uh, just, you know, liberal John Oliver and, and uh, John Stewart have a skit on the back in the midst of the Iraq war about uh, the dividing of the Middle East on a whiteboard and this British official who's drunk and, you know, just squiggling on, on the board. And so it's like a really powerful narrative kind of at a popular level and in very deeply. And this is, you know, to kind of get into the heart of the critique that I'm making, it's a, it's a narrative, it's a bundle. It's, it's a, it's a myth in a sense of a Genesis story that has an identical, it's powerful. It's intuitive because it's very clearly identifies um, the agents who are responsible for how 
the post-Ottoman Middle East came to be. You squarely situate the, the burden of that on the British and the French. So this agreement between the British and the French. Um, well, let me back up. The Sykes-Picot agreement is one thing that's referenced. Another really important part of this early, and this is um, just, you know, most of us, including myself, the way we would teach an, a lecture that day where we talk about World War One and the making of the modern Middle East, um, it's pretty easy to say, okay, this is what happened. The war starts in 1915 to 1916. The British start uh, a series of letters of correspondence with the uh, Sharif Hussein in Mecca, a prominent Arab Muslim leader in Mecca that promises him as a quid pro quo, if you start a revolt against the Ottomans, an Arab revolt, we'll give you, after the war, you're going to have uh, your polity or your kingdom, um, an Arab post-war uh, political entity. So that's a promise. 1916, kind of along with and in conjunction with that, the British are promising the French that we're going to divide it up this way. And there's overlaps and conflicts between those two promises. And then in 1917, in November, the British issue the Balfour Declaration that promises the Zionist organization that they're going to create the British after the war if they win. At this point, it's pretty likely that they're, they're starting to occupy southern Palestine and they're moving towards at that moment, they issue it, moving towards their campaign against Jerusalem. That they're going to, after the war, they will uh, support the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. So these are three agreements that seem mutually contradictory. And then when you talk about the story of how the Middle East gets created, it's like it's these three agreements. And at the end of the war, the Sykes-Picot agreement is the one that got implemented, including the provision of the Balfour Declaration. So the British and the French divided the Middle East, and they created the mandate for Palestine, which becomes a state of Israel. And that. In all of that, the British and the French are the agents that act, mainly it's the British, um, and they're both responsible and to blame because they're the origin of the conflict in Palestine, the origin of supposed artificial boundaries and borders that basically created this arbitrary and fake Middle East that doesn't have any political legitimacy and that all of the conflicts kind of derive from that. All right, so that's an explanation of like what the references here. This would call all of that the Sykes-Picot narrative. And it's pretty intuitive. It's very powerful because it's clear who's responsible and, and who to blame. Um, and it's there's a kind of tragic uh, just appeal to that, um, like if they would have done something different. Now, basically what this argument in this book is that that's, even though that's a kind of nice story and it feels intuitive and appealing, it doesn't really match up to reality. It's not what happened in history during that time. So part of what's going on with that, because one of the things is this is a narrative that kind of just explains all of the modern Middle East. So when we start on one level of critique is there's a selection bias that it's just focusing on a small part of the Middle East. This would be the, the parts that come under British and French mandate control, which is just Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Palestine, Jordan. Uses that as a, a, a kind of to stand in for the entire story of the Middle East. What is it excluding? It's excluding all of Anatolia, which doesn't fit into that narrative. And Anatolia, uh, the uh, Turkish nationalist movement, which is a combination of Turkish and Kurdish, uh, uh, you know, former, you know, arranged from kind of former Ottoman military, Arab, you know, as a whole uh, diverse, you know, Turkish dominance, but of different ethnic groups that join with Mustafa Kemal in uh, waging a three-year war that basically expels all of these colonial powers from Anatolia and establishes the, what becomes the Republic of Turkey. 
um, and just abrogates the post uh, the treaties that are the treaty that is specifically signed relevant to the Ottoman Empire um, the Treaty of Sev, which is going to divide up um, the region that way. So that's outside this narrative at all, because if anything, uh, the boundaries are not being posed by the British and the French; they're getting imposed by the Turkish nationalist movement. In that, um, secondly, you know, if you look elsewhere, I mean, the whole North Africa goes has a different story. Iran also has a different story. Um, in the 1920s, uh, the British and the Russians are very involved in, in intervening in Iran, but there's also a significant um, story of uh, Reza Pahlavi, who founds and, and other agents that found the, the Iranian state and themselves kind of negotiate a lot of, of what the space of that's going to be. And in the Arabian Peninsula, the British are involved, but they're sitting back more as an umpire than as an active agent of imposing anything. They're reacting to primarily the expansion of a, a nascent Saudi state. So it's the Ibn Saud uh, is uh, in re- from the Najd area of, of Central Arabia, expanding and just taking out a whole bunch of other polities, some of whom the British themselves were actively supporting like the Hashemite um, kingdom in the Hejaz. So uh, if you just kind of look at the real story there, the, this, this sort of explanation for how you get to the Middle East starts to fall apart um, on that level. And so uh, basically saying we need to kind of wipe the slate clean and not have these presumptions on one level that tells the story of the making modern Middle East from retrospectively seeing what happened and then just saying, well, it just went that direction. And it snaps, you know, in 1920, you have this treaty, and then that creates the modern Middle East. What I'm arguing kind of back to the periodization argument is, if you actually look, there's, it's not settled for a decade or more after that. Why? What's happening here? And that the Sykes-Picot, you know, the causal little engine inside or big engine inside of there, which you're saying, well, it's the colonial imposition of this. It doesn't work. It's not true to the actual facts. What's actually happening, this is kind of, you know, the subtitle of the book, it's colonial and local groups that are contending and struggling with each other and, and also kind of among each other, right? This is very complex interactions that are happening here. It's that, it's a war that is creating the the new state structures in the Middle East, whether it be that a colonial state structure or a local state structure, and that these come into conflicts. They also transform, you know, the part of the, uh, you know, the story, which we might talk about a little bit more, it's transforming identity and transforming boundaries. And so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a long discurs- discursus on taking down this false genesis narrative we have, a false, and really important, that's this original sin, right? To kind of continue with the biblical imagery is like, it's, it's just, it's not an accurate diagnosis to fully load this moment, the original sin with arbitrary boundaries. Uh, and, and artificial colonially imposed polities. Obviously, the colonial powers are really involved, but to just it, it just excludes from the story powerful local movements, some of which failed. Um, we, you know, from different cases in the book that I talk about, there's a Reef Republic, there's a Sanusi in, in Morocco, and Sanusi, you know, a state like thing in eastern Anatolia. Um, you've got these different projects in the Arabian Peninsula, you have Kurdish. Uh, a really powerful Kurdish attempts to mobilize a military capacity and and, uh, and, and and establish and carve out a space for a Kurdish state after the war. Some of these, we don't see those uh, on, on the map right now, but it doesn't mean they weren't important and that they didn't have inputs into the constructing the modern Middle East. I, I point out how they're integral to how the modern Middle East 
gets forged through war, not through peace agreements. And then secondly, Saudi Arabia and modern Turkey, the Turkish Republic, are clear counterfactual, continu- you know, continually existing um, cases there that don't fit into this narrative. So it's really, you know, that kind of unpacks a little bit about what, what we're talking about. And, and I think it's essential, you know, just again, these things are not just academic, they're vital for how we understand the present day realities of the Middle East, um, to get that story right. And it's like, this is the actual dynamics that were at play there. So it's a little bit of Sykes-Picot background. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, you are actually making a very simple but very strong intervention there by bringing Middle East and the multitude of actors in Middle East in the history of uh, in the history of modern Middle East, right? And like um, this is, yeah, this may sound like a simple kind of like intervention but as you said in the mainstream narrative we don't really uh, talk or hear about where the middle east stands and where the actors in middle east stand in the formation of modern middle east so it's absolutely uh, fascinating um as you were kind of like pointing out in your response to previous question throughout uh, the book word making in the long great war how local and colonial struggles shaped the modern middle east you trace three integral processes of word making that are state formation political identity formation and territorial boundary formation that shaped the modern middle east from the 1910s to 1930s and By doing so, especially in part two, reimagining the post-Ottoman Middle East, you shed light on how local and colonial actors constantly reimagine the post-war political order and mobilize around their own political projects uh, from 1918 to 1920s, which led to wars, as you were mentioning, in Anatolia, in Mesopotamia, Arabia, greater Syria and North Africa. So I was wondering whether you can briefly mention how these conflicting imaginaries during the this period created kind of a fluid and dynamic environment uh, in which local powers competed with each other as well as colonial powers to realize their own political projects, which simultaneously shaped the post-Ottoman Middle East uh, rather than the end of like World War One in the region. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I, I think I, this was the most intriguing and, and, and the, the thing that I was most passionate about are just also kind of just there's a there's a, a, a trying to think of like the word joy or kind of a pleasure just getting back into a historical present that was active in, in a moment again this is kind of the appeal of doing historical work um and, and this is maybe this, I, mean, I have you know presuppositions about uh time and history etc and causation which basically you know the book is very uh, strongly um, just kind of presuming that in a moment like 1919, 1920, the history is not uh, locked in. That this is still is not a critical. It's a critical juncture. It's like I have a long window that's open at this moment. The Ottoman Empire is these the structures for centuries uh, that have been really prominent and kind of ordering the. Uh, the, uh, that have kind of structured the political order of the region. So the Ottoman Empire for a whole area of eastern, the eastern Mediterranean, the Qajar Empire kind of as a successor to the Safavids on the Iranian plateau. And in the far west, the Alawite uh, Empire, um, the Kingdom of Morocco, 
that had, you know, they're the, the vestiges of a broader Islamic political order that had structured the region uh, for over a thousand years at that point. But these, these uh, in the, throughout the 19th century, even though they're, they're under a lot of pressures, a lot of encroachment, um, they're still in place and they're structuring large swaths of, you know, this greater Middle East that I'm, I'm interested, interested in. But the war takes them out. And so we have a, it's a, it's a unique historical moment where nobody knows what's going to take the place of the Ottomans, the Qajars, and the Alawites. And the Alawites and the Qajars, I mean, the, the Qajars get, uh, they, they, they fall, but it gets reconstituted uh, in, in turn, into modern Iran. And the Alawites uh, also are subsumed into a French and Spanish protectorate colonial arrangement. They're uh, survived, but, they, but they're getting transformed. Um, and the Ottomans in the middle, it's like really wide open what's going to happen there. And I think that was, you know, one of the really exciting parts of just thinking through this project and something I was really passionate about doing is to get back into that moment and to get back into, you know, again, this is the question of how is, is a challenge, but through different sort of sources and different means of reading archives to think about what futures are, again, thinkable for, for actors in, in the region. And this isn't just urban elites who happen to be writing newspapers. This is, um, you know, people more on the countryside. I'm thinking some of the Kurdish examples, but across from Suleymaniyah to um, Liche, Diyarbakir, uh, um, you know, different uh, parts of the Arabian Peninsula, um, in a world that is, is kind of open, right? The future is open. Palestine, right? And in, 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 uh, all these villages or cities in Palestine, what's going to emerge after the war? Um, and so this is really essential, you know, as you mentioned in that section of the book, is to first reestablish um, a kind of historical, you know, going backward and, and establishing a present that exists for the, the actors at that moment, 1918, 1919, 1920. And what sort of uh, collect, I mean, this is individual and collective, what are being formulated and are gaining traction within that. So this, you know, examples would include the tri- uh, Tripolitanian Republic out of, you know, in, in uh, Western Libya uh, in the early 1920s, the idea of a reef republic becomes really palpable and, uh, and actually, you know, it, it becomes a reality uh, through that time period. Um, so that, what I try to do is to track, you know, two sides of this, because the Sykes-Picot narrative basically just privileges the colonial imaginations of what they're going to do after uh, the war and that they then did that. And it leaves out the other projects that are in formation and on the local side. And this is you know really important to understand. One of my arguments is that none of this is locked in. So this is one of the problems, again, with a, a kind of a, a real lit, a litany that just tracks uh, these treaty agreements uh, or a treaty or a, a, a a backdoor agreement, back backroom agreement, as reality. Um, one might have those things, but there's massive gaps between what's put into terms there and then what actually takes place on the ground. And in that space between those, you have to account for what changed and why it changed. And really, what's what's in, important in in that explaining that gap is the fact that uh, both the colonial powers are having to. Ad- they're adjusting what they're going to get after the war because uh, none of those plans just goes straight to, to reality. They all are mediated by uh, facts on the ground, by concrete realities. And what's really pushing against their aspirations 
are local challenges against that local mobilizations. And this is like military mobilization, the creation of, uh, you know, armed, being able to wage armed warfare, having some kind of administrative structures. So the, it's a really complicated, but very dynamic story in which over time, as people imagine a post Ottoman world, they come up with ideas like an Arab, uh, kingdom of Syria. What is the space of that's going to be? That changes somewhat through time, but you know, there's different moments where everything from Cilicia, the Taurus Mountains, to the Gulf of Aqaba is thinkable as a unit, unified local entity based at, with the capital in Damascus. Um, the idea of a Kurdistan is very thinkable and different a- a- arrangements of that. Um, so tracking those and then seeing how, and, and this is a part of the periodization of, um, I kind of play off of Eris Manella's idea of a Wilsonian moment, kind of talk about this so-called Milsonian moment where local actors really just own this discourse of self-determination and use it as a part of a broader repertoire of how they think of their post-Ottoman political identities. And they'll uh, mobilize this discourse in an international level and making appeals at the League of Nations. Uh, and then locally, they'll use other discourses of solidarity. This includes like religious notions of jihad, like resistance of struggle, um, that defensive struggle may is not necessarily against a non-Muslim other power. Sometimes that's being uh, waged against other Muslims. So the Ibn, uh, Ibn Saud and the Wahhabis are using the, the concept of jihad and kind of a mobilized solidarity uh, against other Muslim polities, uh, the Hashemite Iraq, Hashemite Transjordan, Hashemite uh, Hijaz, and, and uh, a, a figure like Sheikh Said and uh, Southeastern Anatolia is using the idea of jihad against a Turkish threat against the, the Ummah or against a kind of, uh, uh, with the abolition of the caliphate that uh, is, is done in, in the mid-1920s. Um, he's mobilizing jihad against uh, a Turkish threat. So these um, imaginaries, these political projects that, that get mobilized there, the key thing I'm emphasizing is that they're dynamic and and this is, again, to just kind of historicize and actually give concrete backing to and documentation of the fact that these political futures are dynamic. They get recalibrated and recalculated. There's preferences among them uh, in terms of, you know, here's my, my, my first preference would be to have this. My second would be to have this. I mean, one of the places this is really clearly um, indicated is in, uh, the King Crane Commission is an American group that goes and surveys in Palestine and Syria and parts uh, in Cilicia and so- southern Anatolia and ask people what they want. And they receive over a thousand different de- delegations or, or you know, hundreds of delegations that present different proposals. And almost all these are like a ranked choice thing. We'd prefer to have a unified Arab kingdom, uh, etc. Secondly, we'd like to have some kind of external tutorial control, preferably by the Americans, second, by the British, third, by the French, or, you know, others are like, we, we prefer a Jewish state to be created here, et cetera. So there's rank preferences amongst these different groups. And it just get, kind of gives you a sense of the dynamism, of these political imagination, imaginaries, the pragmatism of, of them, and the fact that they're adjustable, like the idea of a political identity is not fixed. Uh, and also very few of these are exactly tied to something like an ethnic logic or a sectarian logic. Um, and this is also just important to just historically document what's actually going on there. So that's really important on the local side. And then it's also important to show on the colonial side, again, to un- circumvent this idea of a 
uh, all omnipotent kind of Sykes-Picot causal narr- narrative, that the British and the French who end up with the most after the war have to really recalibrate what they're doing. Uh, their their uh, political imaginaries have to keep getting adjusted by reality. And then the Russians and the Italians are, are kind of out of the picture. So this is kind of give you a, a feel for uh what it what how i'm trying to describe that moment of uh it's like a wide futures are thinkable for a certain period of time 1918 to 1920 they get narrowed down over time through war and this is that kind of long importance that I, I'm, I'm saying that this is ongoing warfare that uh, and this is you know in terms of uh historical sociological studies of state formation is kind of obvious it's when it's applied to Europe that uh, Charles Tilly has a famous aphorism, uh, war, uh, states make war and war makes states. This is kind of mutually constituted uh, affinity of, of why you get early modern state formation. But it's it's kind of a selection or, or a, almost an orientalist bias that outside of Europe, you talk about the scramble for Africa, you talk about the partitioning the middle modern, the Middle East after in the Treaty of Sev or something like that, that it's peace agreements uh, or diplomatic conferences that make states and you know draw lines, and, and that that becomes reality. And it, and it, it, even though it may seem obvious, you just point out like that doesn't mean that it actually happened and that it turns into reality. Um, it's really important to kind of you know it's a weird bringing war back into this idea of state formation, uh, and as as you mentioned, identity formation, and then finally, and this is you know a. I'm reversing the order. I thought when I started the project that, uh, you know, talk about the boundaries are important or the borders. And I realized actually the boundaries are derivative effect of these other things that are important. Because we think about the boundaries of the problem in the Middle East. It's like, there's actually a secondary effect of these other things are important. And that um, it's not the boundaries that have made war in the region. It's war that produces these boundaries. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I think you are proposing a very fine balance there by bringing Middle East into the picture without really treating Middle East and its constituents as like a homogeneous whole, right? And like actually showing that the multiple and conflicting political projects that emerge within Middle East and like shaping uh, uh, with also involvement of colonial powers, of course. Um, So my next question is that so in, in word making in the Long Great uh, War, uh, you suggest that one of the main interventions of the book is to uh, de-Europeanize the history of the Long Great War and formation of Middle East after that. However, I think that another very important intervention of the book is that it challenges the nation state narratives in the region by including uh, local political projects which shaped the modern Middle East during this tumultuous years, regardless of their outcomes, such as including Kingdom of, Kingdom of Hijaz, as you mentioned, or the Arab Kingdom, uh, the Reef Republic, the King- Kingdom of Kurdistan, the Ararat Republic, or the Sanusi State. Um, given that none of these political projects were realized to their fullest potential, uh, can you elaborate on your decision of including them as integral to the formation of modern Middle East? And what kind of uh, theoretical and historical correction does such perspective suggest? Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's it's it's a really important question. At, at one level. You know, and social scientific language wise, like selection on the dependent variable 
which would be like maybe in this case, perhaps selecting on the the outcomes that ended up happening. Um, it, you, you know, obviously criticized that, and this was in, 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 a, in a historical narrative a way to try to think about these counterfactuals, right? Think about the case, the failed cases, right? This is a set um, and some level failed, like they don't exist in the present. And but in kind of working through that, I got to the point that it, it was it became obvious that. Again, in terms of if the actual narrative is that war is making states remaking identities, and it's the it's it's an after effect of these that these boundaries, political boundaries, are being mapped. A an interstate system is emerging on this canvas that's been kind of opened up or wiped clean by the, by the inter empire warfare in 1914, 18, 1911, 18. Um, so the, including those is is important. Um, like you said, in terms of this idea of denationalizing the history of the war. I think to expand on that a bit, and it's, it's connected to that, that point about why bring in these other cases. Um, I, methodologically and conceptually, as I thought about how to do this, I wanted to avoid the a kind of retrospective prediction, a bias of that, which would be that you kind of teleologically are constrained by the fact that Syria comes out of this and Turkey comes out of this. And then I, and this is a kind of a, a, a part that I wanted to, a, of the story I wanted to fill in with. I don't think there's a lot of scholarship that um, doesn't slip into that bias that you're kind of projecting, retroactively projecting a container like Turkey. Let's use that as an example. That isn't a necessary container. It's, it, it happened again. I'm trying to explain that. That's an outcome I'm trying to explain. I can't use it in my explanation to explain it, or I can't, it, it, there's there's a kind of a fallacy that's happening. So is a part of bringing in these other cases is to uh, just kind of leave it open ended and not have those biases, even in terms of the way I try to talk about things would really, though this is difficult, and I'm probably uh, failed in a, a couple of instances, but to not anachronistically retroimpose something that that's is coming out. So even to not to kind of actually talk about Morocco, for instance, it's like, it's a contingent outcome that I'm trying to figure out how we got there. And it wasn't a necessary, I mean, I'm, I'm making an argument. These aren't necessary outcomes. They kind of happen through these historical processes. Um, and another dimension that could be, you know, uh, the Republic of Turkey could have included the Mosul province. Um, that's a world, that, a universe, that's a, a, a timeline that, that could exist right out there because it is open. It's an open question up through 1925, 1926, where Mosul province is going to go, whether it's going to be part of Iraq, British mandate Iraq, or uh, Republic of Turkey. So I think you're right that, I think that, you know, a related challenge though there is uh, de- to denaturalize the, or denecessitize uh, the nation that exists after the war. Uh, the tricky part there is, it, I'm basically saying that, that I'm not trying to double down on their artificiality. And this is where I think there's a tightrope here. I'm not trying to say, wait, we'll see the Middle East is arbitrary. Just it's arbitrary because it happened this way instead of that way. It's arbitrary because all state forms, all boundaries and our political identities are all historically constituted. They're all happening because of processes. And the Middle East is de-exceptionalizing the Middle East, de-exceptionalizing any of these cases. They're just like the rest of the world. There's no country in the world that doesn't have as in historically constituted and in that respect, somewhat contingent present day reality. So I think this is, you know, this is, it's a tricky thing. Um, yeah. So the, in terms of theoretical historical correction, that's important. 
um, again, in some ways, I think it's not to shut down uh, that the Middle East is doomed in any respect. I think it's it's a in my mind, it's liberatory in the sense that just puts the Middle East in the same frame as everywhere else. That we really need to have the eyes to see uh, the possibilities that exist in the past, and, and it's maybe getting in, in, into maybe wrapping up, um, but like how that relates to the present. Yeah. Uh, that would be actually a great way to maybe okay. like, <laughs> okay, um, go that direction, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was also wondering <laughs> whether you can expand on how, if at all, um, your historical book about the formation of modern Middle East, um, actually translates into contemporary Middle East and ongoing political struggles in the region. Yeah. Um, and I, I mentioned this some, uh, mostly in the preface and somewhat in the conclusion. Um, I just in the process of, uh, I wrapped up my first book project, which is like my dissertation project. So in the early 2010s, start to, you know, and then it takes a little while right, to get out. But as I started to think about the next book project, which is something that was in the back of my mind, even back uh, working on the first project, um, kind of from 2011 forward, this, my initial idea was to compare mid-1920s revolts in northern Morocco, in Libya, in Syria, in Kurdistan. So across the different countries that that includes, um, and maybe Yemen, um, I don't, you know, something like that. And as I started to work on the project, the project actually, you know, started to just move on its own and it, it grew into this uh, bigger treatment of the whole war. But in that period of the, you know, if you think about the course of time, 2011 uh, into 2015, 16, 17, as I was starting to get into the field work for doing this, um, the region, these points that I thought were really important in the 1920s in the 2010s become the fracture lines. Uh, obviously, the Libyan civil war and, and the ongoing um, destabilization there, which has kind of just opened up as a, as a, a there's not a settled political container there, container there. Ongoing, in even 2022 now, uh, Syria being not really stabilized either. Um, there's these these in, in Iraq and in, in, in this period, you have the emergence of ISIS. You had the emergence of Rojava and other Kurdish kind of experiments and and, North, and Kurdish regional government uh, moves to uh, you know have referendum on independence. You had the outbreak of another Turco-Kurdish you know functionally a civil war in Southeast Anatolia. And then the Saudi-Yemeni war, the, the, every place that I was thinking of in a century later was an active zone of conflict. And so how do these connect? Um, I, mean, I can't <laughs> parse through all of that, but I did really feel, you know, one of the priorities in the project was to think about how the past relates to the present. And that's that's tricky. Part of it is what I mentioned is like, we need to actually understand that first story better. And then... Um, the argument is like, okay, look, it's just exactly the same. It's not like a one-to-one -one correspondence where, you, you know, the famous adage like history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Like there's a echo or a rhyme that's happening here in, in these, in, across this geography. And, you know, just to kind of quickly wrap up, one, the, the, one of the arguments that I'm making is if we can see that earlier period uh, with this different lens, which sees it as more dynamic, and the ways that actual violent conflict is endemic to the story here, the origin stories of these, then I think it makes it's important to give us perspective on what's happening right now, uh, and to see if it, you know a, a phenomena like uh, what what happens in Syria, and in certain uh, 
dynamics that are in play there with a very complicated overlap of local groups, local contention, regional sponsors that are, you know, using these as proxies and surrogates for their interests, uh, whether it be that in Syria or Yemen or, or, or Libya, uh, and then world you know, kind of great powers that are off. And it's, it's that complex thing, not just a Sykes-Picot, you know, great powers impose reality. Obviously in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, it's, we have to understand this very complicated interface and interaction between the local and um, the regional and the global in, in terms of on the ground realities. And maybe one last bit on that is I think, you know, uh, if we think that, you know, these are historically uh, constituted, it doesn't lock, you know, if, if there's not an if the original sin isn't what we think it is, and it's just a fate now, it's just, it's a permanent curse of wrong boundaries. If we realize it was actually dynamic, then I think it does change how we think about the present. I'm not, there's like horrific suffering and, and, and uh, this violence is, uh, there's all kinds of right, terrible things that are happening, but part of the perspective too is just to see um, that this doesn't mean the region is fated to all of this. It's not an outcome of that. There are political futures that can be imagined in the 21st century. I think it's the basic thing is like there's hope because we can reimagine. It's not we're stuck. We can think about new futures there. So, um, you know, it, obviously with a lot of realism about that, but it's still it's an important position to have like there is a future that's thinkable and hope that is possible. So. That's my takeaway on that. <laughs> yeah, this this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Um, before we say goodbye, would you like to add anything else? No, I think, you know, really excited, really glad to have uh, people interact. Um, and uh, feel free to kind of reach out if you have any questions by email. You can find me, I think, on, on the web. And, and I do hope that the book is accessible to a pretty wide readership. I, I tried to intentionally not to uh, exclude any reader with a kind of, you know, with a specialist knowledge or an assumption, um, put in a lot of maps to make it easier to kind of get with a lot of references across a wide space. So really appreciate um, the opportunity to talk about it with you today. Yeah. And for our audience who would be wondering about your future projects, can you a little bit talk about <laughs> your future projects? Sure. I'm briefly, um, I, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm in, or maybe as you mentioned in the bio, I'm interested in empire and colonialism, mainly thought about the their effects and their legacies in the Middle East and North Africa. And, and my next project, which I'm looking at the relationship between nation and empire on a, on a broader scope, and wanting to think about uh, this is something for me that would be new to think about United, the United States as an empire and its uh, kind of overland and overseas expansion, North America, the Pacific, the Caribbean and the Middle East as a part of this zone. But to think about that, uh, again, kind of outside of a methodological nationalism, like a single case, a bounded case, but alongside the French Empire and the British Empire, as three empires that are really interacting a lot, their their interactions uh, overlap. And in these geographies, in the Americas, the Caribbean, Middle East, and Southeast Asia, there's um, a lot of in interfaces between them. So it's going to take a little while to work on that. So I'll come back and with hopefully with another book uh, down the line here. Yeah, it sounds very exciting. And I want to thank you again for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Renee.